Beloved, in the year of our Lord, 353, Julius I, who was the Bishop of Rome, uh, declared, or one could even say decreed, that December 25th should be celebrated as the birthday of Lord Jesus. In 1832, Professor Charles Fallon of Harvard University, when Harvard was actually a university with real professors, brought back a tradition from his native country of Germany, and history tells us lit the first Christmas tree in America. A lot has transpired. That was almost two centuries ago. A lot has transpired since then, going even farther back to 353, even more. And it's been longer still from the dark night, which was brightened by a special star on the day in which King Jesus was born. We celebrate his birth, we celebrate his life, we celebrate his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, every Lord's Day. But this morning we're going to take a panoramic look, a brief panoramic look at the Christmas story. And to set the stage, I want to go back and just read a few verses from the prophet Isaiah, just to kind of set the stage, to remind ourselves that the fuller revelation is given in the New Testament But the prophecy goes all the way back, really even to the Garden of Eden. But in Isaiah 7, verse 14, you may be familiar with this. uh, The prophet writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And then a couple chapters over, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, you read these words. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then over in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, by way of a brief outline of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters you could understand is God's chastening of Israel. And chapters 40 through 66 is God's comfort for Israel. And that's why in the first five verses of chapter 40, you read these words. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. So, when we think of the Christmas story, again, this is a brief panoramic view of it. There are four chapters to this story, the Christmas story. A son, a substitute, a savior, and a shepherd. We'll spend most of our our time in the first two chapters. And the idea here is that we want to ensure 
that we understand what the Christmas story means and why it matters, why God marked it out before he even spoke the universe into existence. So the first chapter in our brief survey of the Christmas story is a son. Now, when we think of God, God reveals himself in his transcendence and in his imminence. Uh, big theological words. God reveals himself in his inequality from us and his intimacy with us. And these two perfections of God, these two attributes of God, are reflected somewhat in two titles of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the second member of the Trinity, both of which are tied in with Son, the Son of God and the Son of Man. The second member of the Trinity has always been the divine Son. But there was a day in history when a special day when he became a human son. This is the Christmas story. This is the gospel. This is why we have all the accoutrements around our worship center here. And you may remember Gabriel told young Virgin Mary, as recorded by good Dr. Luke, in Luke 1 verse 35, Gabriel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Offspring shall be called the Son of God. The Son of God. That's the first title that is given to him when we look at Luke. That is the title, that is the description that Gabriel gives as he is giving this shocking message to this young, godly virgin Mary. And she was virgin. This means conception without union. This means conception without insemination. Mary contributed, from a scientific standpoint, Mary contributed the X chromosome. The Y chromosome was supernaturally created. And as a virgin, she gave birth. But the birth was natural. It was a normal kind of birth. It was the conception that was miraculous. It was the conception that was supernatural. So we usually talk about the virgin birth, which is right, but really virgin conception in some sense captures even better the miracle and the wonder of wonders, which really was a fulfillment of even what we read earlier in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 of that prophecy some 700 years earlier. And beloved, the point here is we have this very brief consideration of this title, Son of God, is that the Son of God came from preexistence in glory in order to be despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He came to be a root out of a dry ground. All language from Old Testament prophecies of his coming, of his birth, of the incarnation. He came aware that he would have no place to lay his head. He who was eternally rich, the Son of God, who was eternally rich, made himself poor for his glory and for our eternal blessing that is a opening to the christmas story the second title beloved i want us to consider is after the son of god he is the son of man and it's interesting the son of man this is the title this is the self-designation that jesus used most often for himself he uses for himself more than any other the son of man is still a messianic title. It still points to his divinity, but it points more towards his humanity. It blends, the Son of Man blends his humility with his glory. And the Son of Man 
reflects his common humanity and his shared solidarity with his children, with you and with me. And now, we're introduced to the glory of the Son of Man back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel recorded this, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So that initial description from Daniel of the Son of Man points very much more towards the glory of the Son of Man. That's the introduction to his glory. But we're introduced to the humility of the Son of Man in Matthew 8, verse 20. And this is when Jesus himself said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, he lived as a man in humility, just as he was born as a baby in humility. And this is where, in our public reading of Scripture earlier in the service, when I read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, back in verse 12, the angel told the shepherds, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, lying in a feeding trough. He will be born in a stable, and he will be laid in a feeding trough where cows or horses would eat their food. The king, beloved, the king, dear friend of the universe, was born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. And the shepherds to whom the angel gave that announcement, and the magi that we will read of later in Matthew, they found him when they did come, when they came to worship him, they found him wrapped like any other baby, with no distinguishing marks, with the exception he was in this feeding trough. And the point here is the humanity and the humility is staggering, and it is part of God's good purpose, God's good plan for God's glory. He landed on this enemy-occupied planet in the form of a baby. No royal robes, no fancy clothing. We could say it this way. He brought his glory down into the dust of the earth. And so when he entered this world, he laid aside his garb of heaven. And the poverty of the feeding trough suits the shame of the cross that, of course, comes some 30-plus years Later, They bring the feeding trough, the manger and the cross, bring together in one seamless message the humility that accompanied the promised one, the one who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3 verse 15 after God poured out his judgment and gave a word of hope to the woman and to the man in the garden after their sin. That all the way back in that initial promise it brings together the plan of God. So, beloved, so, dear friend, this humiliation of the second person of the Trinity to be born, live, and die as fully man, the Son of Man, is at the heart of the Christmas story, at the heart of the Christmas message, and really the heart of the gospel, which is the good news of his eventual victory over sin. And there are two essential elements of his humanity that I want to just lightly touch on here. He learned and he suffered. He learned. So, for example, when he was, he was a baby, uh, even though I think there's some song that, you know, as, when it says something as baby, he didn't cry. No, of course he cried. He didn't cry sinfully, but he had to let Mother Mary know when he was hungry, so he probably cried, but again, in, not in a sinful fashion. When he was a toddler, 
<laughs> Sorry, I just saw a little toddler raise hands and praise. That's good. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> good timing, Finley. Uh, as a toddler, he surely touched things that he shouldn't have touched. But when corrected by Mary or Joseph, he never touched them again. So he did learn in his humanity. This is important. We understand he is God in human form. We completely support and defend and maintain the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we understand his absolute humanity. And part of it is his learning. When he was 12 years old in the temple, we read in Luke chapter 2 that he was sitting in the midst of the teachers. Remember, Mary and Joseph, they left Jerusalem after going there, and they thought, each one thought Jesus was with them, and they got two days out before they realized that he wasn't with, well, one day out, they realized he wasn't with them, then they took one day to travel back, and then they spent one day searching for him, and they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding his answers, and his answers, so the point here is, boy, Jesus first listened, then, boy, Jesus asked, and then, boy, Jesus answered. So he was first a learner. His answers followed. You see, in his humanity, as a baby, as a toddler, even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus' thinking was never clouded with darkness. He didn't have the slightest shred of influence or impact from original sin. He Stated positively, he loved, even as a 12-year-old, even as a 6-year-old, however 6-year-old can, he loved in his humanity the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength for every nanosecond of his 12-year-old life, at then 12-year-old life. How about as a man? Well, as a man, Jesus fell asleep when he was tired. He had to uh, refuel as any other man. He had to eat and drink as any other man. And as a man, his learning continued. This is what we read of in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. He learned obedience. So as a toddler, as a child, but as a man, we are all a work in process. We are all still learning. We are all still growing. We are all still being transformed from glory to glory in the process of sanctification. In his humanity as a baby, toddler, child, and man, he continued to learn. But what does it mean when it says he learned obedience? It does not mean that he moved from disobedience to obedience. It means he moved from being untested and unproven to tested and proven. He learned. And also, the second essential element, he suffered. This is key to his humanity. We live in what Jeremiah called this present misery, all the way from God's judgment on Adam and Eve in the garden, all the way to Revelation chapter 20 is this present misery. Although during the millennium, the misery will be tightened down, but that's a side topic. We sang about the millennium in one of our songs there, but in any event, I'll stay on task. So he suffered. You see, the point here, beloved, is the way of humility is not the way of the world. That's why, continuing on in the same verse, Hebrews 5, verse 8, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. The things which he suffered. Now, to be sure, this refers to Golgotha. This refers to Calvary. The suffering at the cross. But his intense suffering 
didn't begin at the cross. He faced temptation his entire life, far, far beyond what you and I could imagine. If when you and I are tempted, if we give in to the temptation early on, it's just a little bit of temptation. If we resist the temptation, the temptation will intensify. And we go stronger by God's grace and mercy of resisting that. The point is, Jesus Christ always fully, completely resisted temptation. So he wasn't tempted less than you and me. He was tempted far, far more than you and me, or you and I were tempted. So that was part of what he learned through his suffering. That was part of his suffering in this present misery. He knew the sorrows and sadness of life. He knew the betrayal of a friend. He knew the pain of bereavement. He knew misunderstanding, rejection, false accusation. He knew terrible physical pain. He would come to know at Golgotha, Golgotha, terrible physical pain, and he would come to know unimaginable spiritual pain. When he bore the wrath of God, when he quenched the wrath of God as it was poured out on him at the cross on our behalf. And we can think of it this way in terms of the learning and the suffering. In the same way that gold is put into the crucible and melted down with white hot heat to reveal its natural purity. In the same way, the gold of Jesus' natural purity was put in the crucible and melted down with white-hot pain so that he learned from experience what suffering is, and he proved that his purity would persevere. Now, beloved, dear friend, understand this. In his humanity and in his humility, never on earth or in heaven was a being more approachable than Christ. From the time he was a baby and all the way through, he had no armed guards to push away those who came. One of the, think of the shepherds, the shepherds that we read of in Luke chapter 2, one of the least regarded and lowest professions in the ancient Near East at the time. The shepherds, many would tremble when they would approach a throne. A shepherd would tremble approaching a throne. Most people would. To approach a throne of a king, you need to show the guards your invitation. You need to be instructed in royal protocol. You need to be instructed in, as to how to address the monarch and to what to say and where to stand. But who trembles when approaching a stable and a dusting feeding trough, a dusty manger? Those Godly shepherds to whom the first one angel and then a multitude of angels all across the hills and valley there in Jerusalem. Those shepherds didn't have an invitation. They had no instruction and protocol, but they came and they came to the dusty feeding trough in their dirty shepherd's clothing. And they were received by the king, even as a baby. Friend, the son of God, the son of man, is freely accessible. His door is always open. There's always room for another. That is at the center and part of the heartbeat of the Christmas story. That's a son. The second chapter is a substitute. It's a substitute. And the point here is this. Jesus hit the mark in his humanity that you and I can't hit. Not only that we can't hit, but we fall radically, grotesquely, infinitely short of meeting God's standards of absolute, total, sinless perfection 
every day, every second, every moment of our life, of not just not sinning, but even, again, as I mentioned before, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus met the standard that you and I could never meet. He was born to be our substitute. He was born to be our substitute through his submission of self and through his sacrifice of self, through his submission of self. As part of this submission, he put off and he put on. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. And we can read of this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. You'll read these words of the Apostle Paul writing to this church that gave him joy in Philippi. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now, understand this. Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, was, is, and always will be God. He never ceased to be God. He didn't empty himself of his divine nature as God. But what he did put off, what he laid aside, was the independent exercise of his divine attributes. We can put it this way. He laid aside when the creator God of the universe came and was born as a baby and grew up as a man. He laid aside his heavenly glory, his independent authority, his divine prerogatives, his eternal riches. And in one sense, especially on the cross, his perfect communion with the Father. He who created everything, he who owns everything, forsook everything for his glory and for your joy, for your salvation, for your blessing. We could put it this way. He gave up the glory of angels for the spittle of men as part of his humility. And he emptied himself, that emptying we just read of in Philippians. He emptied himself by putting on, and he emptied himself by putting, by putting off and by putting on. His laying aside is perhaps best understood in terms of what he picked up. Continuing on in verse 7, Philippians 2, taking the form of a bondservant, literally taking the form of a slave. You see, a, a slave owns nothing. A slave doesn't even own, a slave at the time didn't even own the clothes on his back. A slave would carry the burdens of his master, would carry the burdens of others. And so the only person, the only man who had a right to everything wound up with nothing and became a slave. That was part of what he picked up. That was part of what he put on. And verse 7 continues, and being made in the likeness of men. You see, he became man both inwardly and outwardly with everything this entails. The pressures, the longings, the needs, the weaknesses, the sufferings, the disappointments, the temptations, with everything it entails, but without sin. Everything except for sin. So you may be familiar with the phrase, to err is human. Well, to err is fallen human. We shouldn't view our standard of humanity as ourselves. We should view our standard of humanity as Jesus Christ. Now, in our fallen humanity, again, he did share everything that entailed except for the sin. He never, ever felt the experience of sin, but he felt the effects of sin far, far beyond what you and I would ever experience. The creator took on the form of the created. The infinite became finite. The rich became poor. That's why Paul 
wrote the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Beloved, dear friend, he carried the supreme burden, the burden that no other man, no other human could carry, the burden of the sin of the world on his shoulders. Paul continues still in Philippians 2, and being found in appearance as a man. So his substance was the incarnation. At his incarnation, he added a second nature, one person with two natures. He was, is, and always has been God. He has a divine nature always. At the incarnation, he added a second nature, a human nature, 100% God and 100% man. So his substance is the two natures of God and man, but his appearance was just of man. People didn't perceive him as God, unless they had eyes of faith, unless they had eyes to see and ears to hear. And this appearance of just a man, this is something that Isaiah, in his suffering servant passage, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, describing this, Isaiah said, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Beloved, dear friend, he didn't receive what he deserved in his earthly lifetime so that we might receive what we don't deserve in our heavenly lifetime. He didn't receive what he deserved in his earthly lifetime so that we might receive what we don't deserve in our heavenly lifetime. That is his submission of self. Second, it was through his sacrifice of self. As our substitute, I already mentioned that he brought his glory. He brought his glory down into the dust of the earth and he brought his glory down into the dust of death. And We can ask the question, since the purpose of Jesus' incarnation is to be our substitute, to take the punishment that we deserve, why couldn't he have just been, why why couldn't he have just come to earth as a man uh, on a Thursday, die on a Friday, and then rise from the grave on Sunday? Why did he have to be born as a baby and live a full life into adulthood? Well, Paul gives us the answer as we continue our brief journey through Philippians 2, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. You see, the first Adam couldn't obey one simple command to not eat the fruit off of one tree in the paradise of Eden. The last Adam displayed costly obedience, perfect obedience, year after year in the wilderness of the world by becoming obedient. You see, from Bethlehem to Golgotha, he hit the mark of perfect obedience all the time, even as a baby, even as a toddler. That's why God had him come as he did. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, kind of wrapping our minds around this idea of the first Adam and the last Adam. Since by a man, that would be Adam, since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see, by the disobedience of the first, all are born sinners. By the obedience of the last, many are made righteous. 
And beloved, in Christ, you are clothed with the unfailing obedience of the Son of God as he progressed from the cradle to the cross all of his life. And his obedient humiliation led to his vicarious substitution. You see, from birth to death, from the womb to the tomb, he drank the cup of darkness so that we may drink the cup of eternal light. That's why Paul, at the end of verse 8, Philippians 2, to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, we have forgiveness of sin because the Son of God came to earth as a man, lived as a man, and died as a man to pay the price for our sin. As the hymn says, what wondrous love is this, that a father would give his only begotten son as our substitute, as your substitute. And part of that substitution is God the Father treated Jesus the man on the cross as though he lived my sinful wicked life even though he didn't. So that when God looks at me, he sees as though I've lived the perfect, sinless, obedient life of Christ even though I didn't. That's what it means that he is our substitute. And that is, again, one more thread which is right at the center of the Christmas story, right at the thread of the gospel. So he's a son, he's a substitute. Third chapter, he's a savior. And of course, we've covered some of this already. But this is certainly the very heart of the Christmas message is a promise of salvation. That's why, again, back in Luke chapter 2, the angel telling those wonderful shepherds, do not be afraid, for I I, uh, bring you good news of great joy, the gospel of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Or as recorded by Matthew, Gabriel told Joseph what his name should be and why it should be Jesus. Matthew 1.21, she, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. So Jesus as Savior is right at the center of the Christmas story. And this good news of a great joy is for all the peoples. This is good news of great joy for the outcasts, the lowlifes, the tax collectors, the nobodies, the prostitutes, and the drunkards, and the sinners. The good news is for all nationalities, all ethnicities, all ages, and both genders. The maker of man became man, that he, the bread, might hunger, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witness, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust. And it was the greatest injustice, the greatest crime, the most evil act, yet it was out of this that God brought about the greatest justice, the greatest good, and the greatest glory for himself, and the greatest joy for his people. And beloved, dear friends, salvation is more than release from sin. It is release from sin, but it's also complete deliverance from the bondage of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. We share in flesh and blood with our Savior who was born as a baby. He himself likewise also partook of the same so that through death he might render. So right there it goes from his birth to his death. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. 
and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Beloved, in Christ we are delivered from the miserable dungeon of bondage into the magnificent palace of freedom, of emancipation. We were slaves of sin, now we are slaves of Christ. And in slavery of Christ is the only true and the greatest freedom and emancipation and the greatest joy. Jesus was born bloody and wriggling in a wooden manger. As he grew up, he befriended wretched prostitutes and respectable teachers. He rubbed shoulders with lowly fishermen and lofty rulers. He showed his love to helpless widows and powerful officers. He knew hunger as well as feasting, laughter as well as grief. He knew loneliness and betrayal and rejection and pain. He came, the baby was born, to suffer the pangs of hell in order to be our Savior, in order to be your Savior, as you place your faith and your trust alone in Christ alone. We are not saved by anything we do. We don't earn salvation. We don't deserve salvation. We can't earn or deserve salvation. It is a gift of God. It is a gift from the Lord God. And Jesus suffered the pangs of hell in order to be just that Savior. So he's a son, a substitute, a savior. The fourth and final chapter, he is a shepherd. There, which means if he's a shepherd, that means we're what? We're sheep. And there are few, if any, animals, I'm told, as depend, I have no farming or agricultural background, but I'm pretty confident in this. There are few, if any, animals as dependent as sheep. They can't feed themselves. They can't protect themselves. Someone has to clean them. Someone has to feed them. Someone has to protect them. Someone has to lead them. Without a shepherd, a sheep will wander, become lost, and get eaten by wolves. A sheep will starve without a shepherd to graze him or her. That's why Christ, as our shepherd, we read in Mark 6, verse 34, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Or John 10, verse 11, perhaps the greatest, most consolidated statement on Jesus being our shepherd. I am, this is Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That is the gospel, that is the Christmas story. This means he guides us and he guards us. And this is nothing new. This is certainly we are reading here in the New Testament, in the New Covenant side of the cross. But even in the Old Testament, even under the Old Covenant, there was the same dynamic of God being a shepherd for his people. That's why God said through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 34, verses 11 and 12, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Beloved, dear friend, we need a Savior. We need a Savior who saves the sinful. We need a Savior who delivers the dying. And we need a shepherd who helps the hurting. Part of his being our shepherd means that the greatest reality is that 
with him as our Savior, we have the promise of heaven awaited. We are signed, sealed, and will be delivered into the presence of God in heaven, forever removed from even the presence of sin, where there is no pain, there is no weeping, there is no sorrow, there is no mourning. But our eternal life begins at conversion. And as part of the process of our sanctification, when we're lonely, God meets us and comforts us in our loneliness. When we're discouraged, he lifts us up. Beloved, he comes to you in your sadness, in your emptiness, in your dryness. When our soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it's sinful, he sanctifies it. When it's weak, he strengthens it. Your shepherd, beloved, takes you through the veil into the presence of God. And your shepherd, as we know from Psalm 23, will lead you all the way through the valley of the shadow of death into the eternally green pastures of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Luke 2, verses 10 and 14, read it more than once, but two twin fruits of the incarnation I want to bring out. I want to leave you with this thought of these two twin fruits of what it means for the creator God of the universe to be born as a baby. And that's joy and peace. Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Beloved, joy and peace are the twin fruits of the incarnation. Joy is peace dancing. Peace is joy resting. That is what Jesus Christ brings by coming to earth. And as I think I already mentioned, it's only with eyes of faith that someone would go, or in some sense, didn't mention this directly with these words per se, but it's only with eyes of faith that someone would go to a stable, look at a helpless baby in a feeding trough and say, here is the king of kings. Here is the Lord of lords. Here is the creator of the cosmos. Here is the promised one. Here is the Messiah. In the same way, it is only with eyes of faith and ears to hear that someone would look at a crucified man on a cross and say, here is my savior. Here is my Messiah. Here is my Lord. Dear friend, if you are here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when he lived his life, the hem of his garment was always within reach. His hand was ever ready to stretch out to the sick. And then and now, his ear is always open for you to cry out to him, to ask him for forgiveness, to plead with him to adopt you into the family of God. He said anyone who comes to him, he would not turn away, but he would receive you to himself and make you a new creation where old things have passed away and new things have come. He was born in a place freely accessible to all who were led to it, came to it, wanted it, needed it. And since God has not shut you out of the stable, dear friend, don't shut yourself out. The door is open and there is always room. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the Christmas story. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your eternal plan of redemption and how you perfectly 
march it out from the creation of the universe, the creation of the cosmos, the pinnacle of creation, male and female created in your very own image, of even allowing sin to enter into into your perfect creation for your ultimate glory, that you would redeem a people as a gift from the Father and a gift to the Son of a redeemed humanity for his glory and for our eternal joy. And the wonder of wonders to think of God being born as a baby and of your perfect life, Lord Jesus. We praise you and thank you for these good words, for this good message. Be glorified, Lord, in all that we do. It's in your name and for your honor and for your glory, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.